Well, good morning, y'all. Good to see everybody. I feel a little out of practice here standing behind this pulpit. Uh, if you have been visiting just the last couple weeks, then maybe you don't know me, so I'll introduce or reintroduce myself. My name is Ben, and I'm a pastor here at New City Church. And uh, my wife and I and our three kids just are coming off an awesome little uh, one-month sabbatical here in the month of June that we got to rest and recreate. Um, and we had a wonderful time. We kicked it off our first week and a half or so. Uh, we went up to a cabin uh, in the middle of nowhere in Virginia on a lake and just had a, a great time getting pulled around on the boat and uh, swimming. We went into Washington, D.C. and saw the sights and uh, took my, my eight and my six-year-old zip lining. Uh, they loved it. It was awesome. Uh, my three-year-old learned how to rock climb, which is even more awesome. Um, we came back and we've been here the last two and a half or so weeks and just enjoying uh, time together with our family and doing a few house projects uh, one unscheduled one, the clothes washer decided to die the very last day of our sabbatical, so that was just an extra blessing to get to uh, install a new dishwasher. Dishwasher Dishwasher was three weeks ago, clothes washer this month, so the Lord is good, amen? All the time. Um, I will say this, it has been such a, a blessing, particularly to just be uh, with my wife and my kids and have uh, uninterrupted time. And um, I feel like each of us, just our hearts have grown closer together. We are enjoying being together even more than we ever did before. And I've always loved my family a whole lot, but I can honestly say to you that I love them more um, just in getting to have this time. And I've so deeply enjoyed being with them. Um, whether you are parents and you have kids still in the house or your, par your, your parents whose kids have flown the coop and grown up or whatever your family situation may be, I will just offer you this challenge and encouragement this summer Whatever that may look like, getting away with your family uh, or just picking up the phone and making an extra phone call, uh, invest in those relationships that, that God has given you. And, uh, and if God has put you in a station in life where you don't have family maybe living with you or close by, um, we here are and want to be and want to go deeper in being your family and being friends and brothers and sisters in Christ. Dig deep into those relationships. They are a gift from God. Um, when I spend time with my family, I experience Jesus in special ways just through being with them. Uh, so I'm glad to be back. I'm excited to uh, open God's word with you this morning. I feel like God has rejuvenated and refreshed me in the, the vision that he has given us here as a church to see our city made new by the gospel. That is why he has called us here. He has given us the mission to glorify him by being and making disciples of the only one true God, Jesus Christ. Um, this morning, if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to pull those out. If you have your uh, tablet or your device of one sort or another, we are going to the book of James. So open or swipe there. If you need a Bible, feel free to grab one there at the welcome table and keep it. would love for you to keep that uh, and make use of God's word in your daily life. We are going to walk basically from now until about October with a few breaks in between. We're going to walk through the New Testament book uh, of James. And uh, James deals with some I guess what I would say are some pretty in-your-face questions. James is going to help us sort of wrestle with the question, what does it mean to do Christianity? Maybe you've been a Christian for many years. Maybe you're not a believer at all, and you're just hearing about what this Christianity thing is. I'm going to challenge you with the idea that James is a very hard-hitting book that wants to give us the practicals of what does it mean if we've experienced salvation in Jesus Christ to live and follow him, if we've been saved by God's grace and justified before a holy God by his grace, what does it mean for him to sanctify us by his grace, to change us, to make us more and more into the image of Jesus? 
practical questions that, that this book will begin to address. How do I make war against the sin in, in my personal life? How do I know what truth is in a world where it feels like everybody says that they have the corner on the market of, of truth? How do I speak the truth in love to, to a world that doesn't necessarily want to hear the truth and who has not yet experienced God's love? How do I show generosity to the poor and to those in need? How do I love others with the grace and mercy that Jesus has for me to express that same love of Jesus towards them? How do I move from, from head knowledge about God to a, a heart-changing knowledge of the one true God? How do I move from an academic set of theological facts to teaching the realities of God's mercy and justice to the next generation? Or how do I respond when I see things in our world, in our country, that break God's heart? What, what should I do about those things? I don't know about you, but I don't want to be a Christian of empty words. I don't want to be a Christian of fake words. I don't want to be a believer who becomes over time, just another statistic of one who walks away from his or her faith. Uh, I don't want to be a Christian who lives in isolation, who maybe has heard the truth of the gospel, but hoards that good news and refuses to engage with other people who hears the word, well, James will say, but doesn't do it. I don't want to raise the next generation of kids to run from the church at their soonest opportunities, and, and these are real issues that we face. I hope, like, like me, that you can resonate with the desire that I want to be used by God. In this hour, with, with as many hours of life that God has given me here on this earth, I want to see the good news of Jesus impact my neighborhood, my city, my country, my world, in my job, in my school, in my relationships, in my family. I want to see lives that are eternally changed by the one man who can do it. His name is Jesus. Amen. This morning, James is going to show us what a living and a, and a visible and an impactful faith looks like in a broken and hurting world. Uh, in five short chapters here in the book of James, you, we, we get 54 distinct applications or imperatives for our lives. And, and I promise you this, that Jesus is going to push you through this book uh, out of your comfort zones. He's going to step on our toes in ways that we may or may not really want to have happen because Jesus is not here for our kingdom. He is here to establish his kingdom. But the way that he is going to do that, the only way that he can, the only way that he does is by pouring out his grace and his mercy, giving us the freedom to admit, Lord, I'm a sinner. I've made mistakes. I haven't lived the way that I ought. And Jesus says, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden and lay down your burdens. Let me invite you to stand here this morning. We're gonna stand as we read God's word. We're gonna read James chapter one. We're gonna read the first 18 verses together. So if you'll stand with me, I'm gonna read from the English Standard Version this morning. It'll also be on the screen behind me. This is uh, lengthier, but hang with me. Buckle up, verses one through 18. The word of God says this. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. 
and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. When he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Thus far, the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let me open us in a word of prayer. Father, we submit ourselves to your word. We thank you that it is true, that it is without error, and that it is filled with your story of compassion and grace. Father, we need you. Lord, make, give us ears that are open to hear and eyes that are open to see that we might hear wonderful things in your word this morning, Lord. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Five ways this morning. Yes, I said five. Five ways or five applications this morning how to talk the talk and walk the walk of faith in Christ as we overcome the trials and the temptations that we face in this life. The first of the five we see here in the first four verses of this passage is this, God is good, so you can take joy even in your trials. Let me say that again. God is good, so you can take joy even in your trials. Who is this guy, uh, James, first of all, who, who is addressing this, this letter that he's writing to believers? Well, there are four different James, at least four different major James characters in the New Testament. Um, this man is James, who is the half-brother of Jesus. He is the little brother of Jesus. Uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 7 and verse 5, says that this James, brother of Jesus, did not believe that Jesus was the Son of God until the resurrection. But when James saw Jesus physically standing in front of him, bodily resurrected from the dead, he believed that Jesus was who he had told him he was from the beginning, and James' life was forever changed. Maybe you're an adult this morning, and you've never asked Jesus to be your personal Lord and Savior, and there's something within you that says it's too late. James is an adult when he comes to saving faith in Jesus, and I would say the same thing to you that Jesus says to each one of us, which is, come to me. It is never too late. It is not too late. Jesus offers his grace to you today. 
this James, after his conversion to Christ, uh, the book of Acts tells us that he was in the upper room in Acts chapter one when the Holy Spirit came down, that he ultimately will become the pastor of the Jerusalem church. And later on, after the writing of this particular letter, the book of James, he would lead the Jerusalem council of Acts chapter 15 that we looked at a few months ago. And in that, he presides over the apostle Paul, over the apostle Peter, and over all of the apostles and leads them to one of their first great decisions as they deal with crisis in the church. But notice the way that James speaks to us and to the believers here at the beginning of this letter. He doesn't begin his letter to the church by saying, hey, y'all, I don't know if you know, but I'm kind of a big deal. I'm Jesus' brother. I'm the pastor of the biggest church in the world. He doesn't begin any of that way, does he? His, his one-word description of himself is a servant. James, a servant. In Greek, it's the word doulos. It can be translated bondservant or even slave. I am a servant to God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. My identity is wrapped up in him. I suspect that the trials that James had gone through in his own life are part of what yielded that deep sense of humility and giving glory to God. We can pray that it is the same in our own lives. So this is James, and and who is he writing to? He tells us again in the first sentence that he's writing to the 12 tribes of the dispersion. And this refers all the way back to in the Old Testament that God raised up the Assyrian army and later on the Babylonian army to scatter and really judge and in many ways destroy the nation of Israel for their wickedness. This happened in 722 BC and then again in 586 BC. And so there are Jews who, in the moment of his writing, and even to our modern day, are scattered around the world. At this point, they have been scattered for six to 800 years and and are experiencing every form uh, of poverty and are being treated by and large as second-class citizens wherever they are. But James has a double meaning in what he's saying. He's also speaking to Jews who have become Christians who were a part of his church in Jerusalem. But historically, we know that, this, that, that what is also happening is in Acts chapter eight, there is a huge persecution. Jews killing new Christians after the moment in which Stephen is stoned to death. Stephen is really the very first martyr, the first Christian to lose his life for being a Christian, for believing in Jesus. And out of that moment, many of the believers who were in Jerusalem had to flee for their lives, leave their jobs, their home, parts of their family, their livelihood, and run. And James is sending this letter out to comfort and encourage those believers and say to them, when you experience trials, and I understand that you're in the middle of a trial, He wants to say to those believers then and to us as believers today, when you experience trials, when you experience difficult circumstances, to count it all joy. Look again with me at verses two through four. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Not if, but when. See that? Not, hey, it might happen that you go through a difficult time. But when you go through a difficult time, trials, disappointments, struggles in life, suffering, pushed back by the culture because your authority is not them, but your authority is King Jesus. When you face those moments, count it all joy, which sounds so counterintuitive, doesn't it? 
It sounds crazy, particularly to our culture, because our American culture, well, we are just allergic to discomfort, aren't we? We've had our comforts and we are not about to give them up. And so James' words to our mindset and our ears sounds very foreign. What he is saying is not trials are joy. He's not saying you shouldn't be sad or even grieve when you face trials. He's saying that even in your suffering, that that suffering itself is a cause for rejoicing. How could that be? Only if there is a good and holy God. We understand, and and the Bible confirms, that it is not fun when you can't make ends meet in your home. We understand that it's not fun when you lose your job. It's not fun when your family member is diagnosed with cancer. It's not fun when your marriage falls apart. It's not fun when somebody passes away in your family too soon. It's not fun when that boyfriend or that girlfriend that you've grown in relationship with tells you, hey, I don't think you're the one that I wanna spend the rest of my life with. It's not fun when you go through those moments and yet we can take joy, says the scripture. Remember in Acts chapter five, when we went through the book of Acts last year, uh, the apostles, if you remember in this scene, the apostles were beaten by the civil magistrates simply for preaching the good news of the gospel. And their words after receiving this beating, the Bible says that they left that beating rejoicing, that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. It's counter, counter to everything that we might think. But James tells us God is lovingly working out a purposeful two-step process here in your life. He says, step one, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. The word steadfastness, we could replace it with perseverance, endurance, spiritual toughness, staying power. We watched a a movie a few weeks ago called The Fighter uh, with Mark Wahlberg. Anybody seen The Fighter with Mark Wahlberg? It is a story, a true story of a boxer. And what you see through a large part of the movie is he is putting in, he's doing the hard work. He's putting in the sweat equity uh, of exercising in the gym, of working out and punching the bag and, and sparring with opponents. And he goes to fight after fight and basically gets a beat down over and over and over again. And you go, why is he subjecting himself to this? But what you see behind the scenes taking place is he is growing in perseverance. And the the ultimate result is in this true story is that he is finally able to defeat his opponent. How much more for us in this life that God is working in us a steadfastness that leads to step two. The steadfastness produces what the Bible calls a complete and even a perfect spiritual maturity in your life. Not that you will be perfect in this life. We look forward to perfection in the next life face-to-face with Jesus. But that through your trials, God is using it for your good, for his glory. And he is refining you more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. I would tell you in my own life, I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior when I was 16 years old. And before that time and after that time, uh, I turned 40 this month. Hey, yay. Um, Over the course of those 40 years, what I have seen over and over again is that the most difficult times in my life, I absolutely didn't understand what God was doing at the time, and I certainly didn't like it, but that the hardest times were the times that God formed my character the most. The most difficult times were the times that God revealed sin in my heart and showed me the goodness of doing it Jesus' way. 
And I promise you that it is the same for you. God will use even those difficult circumstances for your good, and for that reason, we can take joy. Number two, as we walk through James chapter one, number two is this in verses five through eight. James changes topics rapidly, as you will see. Real wisdom is generously given by God, so ask him for more. Real wisdom is given generously by God, so ask him for more. Again, the context overall here is trials and even temptations. So for most of us, when we are in the middle of a trial, the question or the statement that we give to God is is usually this, right? God, why me? Why me? Or we say to God, God, get me out of this now. And sometimes he may answer in that way and sometimes he may not. But what if when we find ourselves in those trials, our response and our actual prayer to God was something more like this. God, use this trial to give me more wisdom. Use this trial to teach me wisdom. Well, that immediately leads us to a pretty important question. What is wisdom? What is wisdom? Oftentimes we think of wisdom as, as knowledge, and there is a sense in which wisdom is knowledge. But let me, let me speak to, directly to that. Wisdom is not just knowledge. It is applying God's knowledge for God's good purposes. Ralph Martin puts it this way, wisdom is practical righteousness in everyday living. The Bible puts it this way in Psalm chapter 111, a very well-known verse. It's one that we should teach our kids to memorize at an early age. The fear of the Lord, and fear means reverence, not fear of the boogeyman, but the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it, have a good understanding. Psalm 111, verse 10. The world is in desperate need for wisdom, and it will have none because it has rejected God, the source of wisdom. King Solomon is an interesting character in the Old Testament who who waffles back and forth. He is very much the double-minded man. But King Solomon, the king of Israel for a time, asked God for wisdom, and God gave it to him because he asked for wisdom and not for things. The Bible says that Solomon was given more wisdom than any other person on the earth. But then Solomon's heart wandered from the Lord. And rather than pursuing the Lord and pursuing his wisdom, he chased idols. Idols meaning substitute gods, things that we think will fill that hole in our heart and life, but inevitably will never do what they promise. For Solomon... His idol was women. We are told in uh, the Old Testament that Solomon took 700 wives and 300 concubines. Wisdom? No. Most or all of whom uh, did not know the Lord, we are specifically told. What happened? Well, he stopped daily walking the walk of faith with the Lord and living God. He stopped listening to God's wisdom and God's word, and he put himself back on the throne of his life. Becoming a Christian is saying, God, I want you to be on the throne of my life. But even as Solomon reigned on the throne of Israel, he became conceited and puffed up and said, maybe I can do a better job leading my life than God can. And he becomes what James describes as double Minded. He becomes worldly, among many things, most obviously. He made women a possession rather than a person. And he engaged in what the Bible always clearly teaches is a heinous sin in the sin of polygamy. He became double-minded. 
It means facing both ways. It means someone who on a Monday says, God, I need your wisdom, and on a Tuesday goes to the world and says, I need your wisdom. That's what the Bible is talking about here when it describes being double-minded. Do you find yourself in that place of being wishy-washy and back and forth? Here, James describes it as being tossed around by the waves when you look to God on a Monday and then turn back to the world on a Tuesday. When we approach our lives constantly doubting God, it can feel that way. So how do we get then this this real wisdom? The, The Bible here is very clear that the conduit of wisdom is faith is faith in the one true God, is believing that God is who he says he is. And that is because the generosity of God the Father is the source, is the the overflowing fountain of wisdom. This should be incredibly obvious to us because as many of us are, are familiar, John chapter three, verse 16, says that God has already given us his one and only son. And if God has already given us his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life, if God has already given his one and only son, the logic continues in Romans 8, 32, if he's already given us his son, how much more then will he not obviously graciously give us all things, including wisdom? James says, God is ready for you to ask. He's waiting for you to ask. He invites you to ask. He is a father who loves to give good gifts to his children. How many of us, if you're a parent, you know that there's more fun in giving a gift to your child and seeing them light up than than them giving a gift to you. And the Bible in Matthew chapter seven gives us that same logic. It says, if you enjoy giving gifts to your children, how much more does God, your heavenly father, the God of the universe, enjoy giving gifts to you as his beloved creation? So ask. Matthew 7, 7, that same chapter, the Bible says this, Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. Real wisdom is generously given by God, so ask whatever circumstance, trial, or temptation you may be in. Number three, the Bible tells us this in verses nine through 12. Again, you see James moving from topic to topic. Regardless of your bank account, your true riches are in Jesus. Regardless of your bank account, your true riches are in Jesus. James will throughout this book spend a major amount of time focusing on the economically poor and the economically rich. He has great concern for both. Verse nine through 11, let me read to us again, says this. Let the lowly, meaning the poor, economically poor, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich, the financially, economically rich in his humiliation, Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. We're in Florida. It's July. We know all about that. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Here James wants to talk to us first about the rich poor. The rich poor. It says the poor person's poverty has produced in him a lowliness of spirit, which enables him to, to keep his eyes more focused on God. Jesus himself said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
what is Jesus, what does James want us to understand here? To the poor, again, he's talking to the economically poor and saying, you have been given a gift, an advantage even. He, he is giving us this instruction. Stop looking to what the world says makes you valuable. Don't listen to that voice anymore. Instead, find your value exclusively in what God says makes you valuable. It's not your money. It's that you have been created and saved by God. He says, take pride in your exalted status, that you are seated in the heavenly realms with Christ. Let me say this to everyone very clearly. We reject the idea as believers that being rich will make you happy. You understand that? Being rich, there is no promise or guarantee that it will make you happy. And I think most of us can get on board with that fairly easily. But as believers, we also reject the idea that being poor will make you unhappy. You understand what I'm saying? Why would that be? What do you mean? It stinks to be poor. I know. Because real happiness, real riches, says the word of God, is in knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. It is not in any amount of cash that we can save up. It is in one thing. True joy, true happiness is not in my bank account. It is in knowing Jesus. And the practical application, particularly for someone who finds himself economically poor, is when you go to someone's house and you find yourself thinking, man, their house is a lot bigger than mine. Their car is a lot newer than mine. Their lawn is a lot more freshly manicured than mine. The toys that they have in their house look a whole lot nicer than mine. And and the clothes that they're wearing look a whole lot trendier than mine. Can you rejoice with them? Rather than letting Satan in the door who will tempt you to covet their stuff and become embittered and go, God, why? Why do they have that and I don't have that? Being filled with the joy of the Lord begins to change and transform our heart to a place where we say, God, God, I will, I will gladly give up any desire that I have, any dream that I have, in order to more fully join what you are doing here on earth, God, because I recognize that being a part of your mission to save people eternally is infinitely more valuable than any amount of money that I could ever collect. That is what I put my, my joy and my treasure in. But he also wants to talk to us about the poor rich. The poor rich. R. Kent Hughes in his commentary says, we tend to think of the rich as overprivileged, but Jesus taught that they are underprivileged spiritually. Jesus speaking in the book of Revelation, chapter three and verse 17 says, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered and I need nothing. But Jesus corrects them and says, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And we should be, it's important for us to not immediately let ourselves off the hook. Um, all of us, nobody thinks that they're rich, right? It's that person over there, they're rich, not, not me. But we have to understand that if we live in America, that by and large, the majority of us here in America are experiencing life as the top 1% of the top 1% in the world, historically and right now. We have been given immeasurable riches, and for that we are grateful, but the Bible says here, don't take pride in your money. Don't take pride in your position. Don't take pride in your power. Matthew 6, 24, Jesus says you can't serve both God and money. If you are a believer, 
you have identified yourself not with your money, but you have identified yourself with another. One who, though he was rich, the Bible says, became poor so that through his poverty, you might become rich. You know, realizing, experiencing God's generosity to to us leads us to see other people. It leads us to see people in need. It leads us to feel what they feel, their hurts with them, and it leads us to give freely of everything that we have to others. Zacchaeus in the New Testament is probably the most famous rich person in the scripture. He's one of many, but he he comes to saving faith in Jesus and his immediate response when he responds to Jesus' invitation to salvation is he goes back and he repays all of the people that he had actually stolen money from. It changed his life. But James says that both the economically rich and the economically poor can be eternally rich. James chapter 1 and verse 12, the very next verse, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who, who love him. The language of humility and the language of hope is for the poor man and the rich man because it is level ground at the foot of the cross. It does not matter what you bring. The Bible says every tribe, every tongue, every nation can experience saving grace in Jesus, regardless of your story, regardless of your bank account, regardless of your socioeconomic status, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And Jesus says to all, come, come. Romans eight seventeen says, if you are in Christ, if you have become a child of God, then you are a co-heir with Christ, which means you get all the same stuff that, that his dad is giving him. He, his dad's gonna give it to you too. You're co-heirs, which means you are rich beyond anything this world can offer. Well, that sounds pretty good. How do, I, how do I get that? John chapter five, verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Maybe today is the day that you say to God, God, I wanna stop chasing money. I want to stop living in bitterness or whatever the sins are that maybe people know about them or they don't know about them. You say, God, I want to be free from those sins. I admit freely that I'm a sinner. Forgive me. Save me. I want to turn from my sins and I want to know eternal life in you. And Jesus can hear that prayer. He will hear that prayer. And his answer to that prayer is always yes and amen. And he will joyfully join you into his and our forever family. Number four, in verses 13 through 15, we see this, temptation and sin bring death, but Jesus brings life. Temptation and sin bring death, but Jesus brings life. Let no one say, says the Bible, when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Don't blame God for your sin. God will give you trials for your good, yes, but he will never tempt you to sin. When we face trials, our sinful nature and Satan will certainly tempt us to sin. Whether it's struggling to make ends meet, which can tempt us to doubt God's kindness 
or it can teach us faith in his good providence. Whether it's the death of a loved one that can tempt us to doubt God's love or it can help us grow in trusting that our heavenly father will never leave us. Whether it's why, why the prosperity and the pleasures of the wicked that can cause us to question God's justice or it can show us where our hope really should lie. Genesis 3, Adam and Eve blamed God. You remember this? The very beginning of the story, first book of the Bible, Adam and Eve say, Adam's a real chump. He says, God, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. So God, it's your fault and, and it's Eve's fault. Eve follows suit and she blames the serpent as well as essentially misrepresenting who God is and his character and goodness for most of chapter three of Genesis. They blame shift. Anybody ever try to confront a child about their sin? How's that go usually? Or you confront a child about something that you know they've done wrong and you will hear every ounce of disinformation that the world has ever known about this story and this situation and why it's not my fault, it's actually this person's fault, that person's fault, that brother, that sister, or these circumstances. Guess what? You and I are the children of Adam and Eve. And in our hearts outside of Christ is that built-in mentality that when we are confronted by God's law with the reality of our sin, we go, it's not my fault. And inevitably, we blame God in one way or another. The scripture says that there is a process that is taking place here that desire, the desire for sin, gives birth to sin, and that sin gives birth to death. James 1.15, desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin, and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. Sinful desire. So when we, when we romance the drink, when we entertain lustful thoughts, when we begin to give in to jealousy or we begin to give in to bitterness, what inevitably happens is we break God's law and we reject his plans and his promises for our good and for our lives. And instead we drink from the sewers of sin rather than going to the fountain of living water. Guys, sin is super fun for a while, isn't it? You can avoid consequences for a while. You can enjoy the temporary pleasures of what sin might be offering you, but the Bible is not unclear about where it ends. Sin always, 100% of the time, ends in death. So the next time that you are tempted towards sin, consider where it inevitably leads. It can only birth one thing, and that is death. The sin of Adam and Eve led to physical and spiritual death for all of humanity eternal death and eternal separation from God in a very real place called hell. But, fifth and finally, every good thing is from God the Father. Every good thing is from God the Father, but his best gift is new life in Christ. The Bible says this in verses 16 through 18, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creation. John, can you let the kids come back in? They can come back in and rejoin us as we finish out here. The Bible is saying this. James is telling us, God, listen, God made and God sustains the heavenly lights. God gave birth to the 10 octillion stars that we know of. He made every constellation. He keeps it going. He keeps the earth 
perfectly in motion so he can handle your situation too. He's a good God, and he doesn't change the way that sun and the moon are constantly changing their phase or constantly in motion. God never changes. People, we're double-minded. On our best days, we change, we shift like the sand, but God never changes. He's the God who will never leave you nor forsake you. Everything good comes from God, but the best gift is the gift of himself. Of all the wonderful gifts that God has given us, and there are so many reasons to be grateful, the best gift that God has given is himself. God gave his only son, Jesus, to give us salvation and new life. And if you've never heard or experienced that reality, the scripture invites you to it today. Romans chapter five says this, for as by the the one man's disobedience, that's Adam's disobedience, many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, that's Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Jesus brings hope for the sinner. Jesus brings hope for the addict, the poor, the broken family, the orphan, the widow, the self-righteous, the rich man who has loved his riches more than Christ. Jesus brings grace for them all. Jesus brings eternal life for them all. And he doesn't just begin to change and rearrange your life now, but he has promised you an eternal home in heaven. And all you have to do is ask. In the same way that he says, ask for wisdom, the Bible says, call upon Jesus, call upon his name for salvation, and he will save you. And if you are a believer this morning, the message is the same. Call out to Christ and ask for his strength, his wisdom, his continued forgiveness for the sins in your life, not that your salvation is in danger, but to draw near to him again and let nothing stand between the two of you. Let's take a moment now and let's pray to our good and loving Heavenly Father who has sent his only son for us.